Welcome back to the Behind the Wings podcast, produced by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in beautiful Denver, Colorado. It's season four, which means 10 new episodes coming your way. Boy, do we have a lot to explore. In celebration of Black History Month, we're excited, and I mean really excited, to speak with the first black astronaut candidate Ed Dwight Jr. In 1961, just three years after NASA started, our guest was making waves as a test pilot in aviation and training to be one of the first astronauts. Ed talks about his incredible journey, his time in the Air Force and the space program, and how in an instant, the dream of spaceflight was taken away. I'm your host, Rick Crandall. I've been fascinated by space for as long as I can remember. Three. Two, one, zero, we have a liftoff. And with me is my co-host, retired fighter pilot and Wings Over the Rocky CEO, John Barry. Stay with us because this one is gonna be cool. All right, let's get started. Ed Dwight, good to have you here with us. Well, it's good to be here. You know, back in this airplane universe, it's just amazing to me. A little bit of home, huh? <laughs> yeah, a little bit, yeah. 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 I want to start our conversation, the three of us, by you kind of giving us the playlist of your career. So, so take me from Fairfax, take me from Kansas City, and get me to here today. What transpired over all those years? I was born uh, on a little farm that was within walking distance of Fairfax Airport. But anyway, I became a mascot because I just was there every day hanging around, just hanging out. You know, and I'm four or five years old, and, and these guys paid me money for cleaning out their airplanes. And in my little mind, tiny mind, you know, I said, well, I'll never be able to be a pilot because I can't drink beer. <laughs> because they, they, they were coming to uh, uh, Wyoming and, and Colorado for oh. hunting. Okay. They were flying steermen back in those days, you know, back in the 30s and stuff. I got my first flight when I was nine. I told them I didn't want any more nickels and dimes. I just wanted, I wanted to fly the airplane, and I, I was smitten by there was no stop signs up there. You know, I think well, this is pretty cool. <laughs> but anyway, I uh, graduated from high school and I got a scholarship, art scholarship. So my father sent me down and said, you're not going to be no damn artist because I'm not going to pay for your life the rest of your life. You're going to be an engineer, you know. And so I was going to slick him. So I said, I'll do architectural engineering and I can draw. And so everything was cool with me until I, on one of my paper routes, was on the cover of the black paper I threw above the fold, was a black pilot standing on the wing of an F-86 saber jet. He had been shot down in Korea. And it was five foot four, like Dwight, like <laughs> like I grew up to be. And yeah, I uh, uh, I went down to I left school that day and went straight to the recruiting office. And said, I want to apply for pilot training. And the guy told me, he said, first of all, you stutter and you're too short. I was really befuddled. I did stutter, but I wrote to Pentagon, and I said, I want to fly. Now that you guys are letting black people fly, and they wrote me back, good. And they sent a team onto my college. I never opened my mouth to those <laughs> And they sent us to Denver. And crazy, crazy thing happened. When I was eight years old, World War II started. And they had put the actual manuals for, for pilot training for Army Air Corps manuals in that library. And I'd, I'd taken those things on permanent checkout. And, and I was reading all about this flying stuff. And at the end of each one of these chapters was a good test. And, and I took it, came out to Denver 
I sat down to take the test. It was a two and a half hour test. I finished it in about 25 minutes. I took it up and, I, and the guy told me, is it too tough for you? I said, no, I might have missed two. I'm not sure. And sure enough, I missed two questions on the set. But anyway, 33 of us came out to Denver and I was the only one to pass for pilot. One other guy passed for navigator. But that, that, that started the whole thing. And, that, and, and still, I haven't said a word. I mean, as much as I could. And I had to be very thoughtful about everything that came out of my mouth because I couldn't say my first name because it began with a knee. But those are the issues that, were, that I was faced with. So I was terrified uh, when I got a pilot assignment and went on into to pilot training and all through pre-flight. I, you, you couldn't get a peep out of me, man. So pretty unique time and, and all that. Yeah. What did you start flying uh, when you went through pilot training? The PA-18 and then the T-28 and then the T-33. So Ed, behind us is the F-104. Right. Now you got to fly that. So what was it like to fly the 104 in the test pilot school at Edwards Air Force Base? In the beginning, it was almost terrifying because the F-104 flies real fast as long as you're flying it straight. And don't think about turning it or maneuvering it or doing anything outrageous with it because it doesn't respect you. And the reason I liked the F-86 because it was self-correcting. <laughs> <laughs> you could yet hold it into a spin because uh, it wanted to get out of it. And this airplane uh, had its own agenda, if you will. Tell us, how do you make an astronaut in those days? Kennedy didn't know any black people. And the only black person he knew was Harry Belafonte and he needed a black boat. So he called up Harry Belafonte and said, you know, you gotta deliver me the black boat. He says, I can do two boats for you, me and my wife, but uh, what I'll do, I'll hook you up with the people who can do this for you. And so they had a meeting at, at Belafonte's house, Dr. King, Roy Wilkins, A. Fuller Randolph, and Whitney Young was the head of the Urban League. So, so you got these people in this room and the idea was what do they want and what can he deliver to them to get the black boat? Whitney was the head of the Urban League and he said, you know, Mr. President, we have a problem in the black community because we don't have any scientists and engineers. The good colleges that can deliver those things will not let them in. And the solution was, look, we have four military academies and each one of those military academies can graduate engineers and scientists or pre-engineers and pre-scientists, okay? And I can fill those academies up. And at the end of this four-year thing, these high-end colleges cannot, when they get their master's level degrees, can't turn them down, okay? So how do we do that? And the answer was, make me a black astronaut and give him to me. And that's exactly what he told President. And for a year, Whitney was calling him every day, what about my astronaut? And so what he did, he got tired of Whitney from calling and he called Bobby and said, take care of this. And Bobby Kennedy was the one who stepped in and did all the work to make this whole thing happen. By the time you were close to completing your flight training in, in uh, 1961, mm -hmm. talk of putting the first black person in space was circulating in the White House. Yeah. President Kennedy tasked his people to make it a reality. However, the requirements to become an astronaut were extremely strict. So tell us a little bit more about how you were selected. First of all, the question is, how do you find a black astronaut? <laughs> and so they came up with these four requirements. You had to be under 30. You had to have an engineering or science degree. You had to have 1,500 hours in fighter jets. And the fourth one was if you were military, your last three OERs, officer effectiveness reports, had to be rated outstanding. 
And I come along, uh, you know, and I got 2,200 hours of flying time. I got a, a degree in aeronautical engineering. I'm 27 years old, and my last four were rated out, uh, outstanding. So my card fell out. Well, there's got to be more than this guy. So they did this analysis, and it turns out that we had 125 black pilots in the world, and 90 of them were Tuskegee Airmen from World War II. Two of them were, were flying for Air France, and the rest of them were bush pilots in the Caribbean. They weren't flying jets, and they didn't have aeronautical engineering degrees. And so now they're stuck with Ed Dwight, and they had no choice. At this point, is it their decision, or is it still your choice whether you want to do this or not? It was presented to me, and when I got this, I was going to Berkeley, working on my master's in nuclear engineering, flying five airplanes on the base, everything that I could fly. Uh, on the base, and I was happy as could be, and I wasn't a part of it. I was invited, Ed, they all make hamburger out of you, dude, down there. Don't even think about it. And, and I, I mulled it, uh, and went week past, and uh, what, what's going to happen? What are you, you going to do? My mother was the one who talked me into it. She said, you've got to do this. She gave me this whole Rachel thing, you know, you know, you can, you can help the race, you can help uplift the race, and they need people to inspire them. She, and we talked hours on the telephone, and I finally said, okay, you know. And so I, I sent my, my credentials in, and like I said, four days later, I was assigned to Edwards. So I get to Edwards. What had happened prior to my coming down there, the instructor staff and all the student pilots that were down there at the time in the auditorium and told them what we want to get rid of him is don't talk to him, don't drink with him, don't invite him to your house, don't acknowledge him, don't socialize with him, obviously, and he'll be gone in two to six weeks because he won't be able to cut it. We'll just isolate him. And so when I got down there, that, that was the, the law of the land and the rule of the day. And I was wondering why I'm, I'm walking in the halls and then going in the classrooms and stuff like that, and everybody wants to turn their head and do anything in the world not to talk to me. And I was there to learn. I mean, it was a lot of academics, of course. I'm just sitting there listening. I just kind of thought in the beginning, it was just part of everybody's nervousness not to be socializing. You know, but after, after a minute or two, uh, I found out that there's something going on here. <laughs> what ended up happening, though, the whole thing backfired. And the reason it backfired, because they told these guys, don't talk to Dwight, leave him alone. But these guys put their ears, wait a minute. The word is the president put that guy down here, and he knows the president, and so why not be his best friend? <laughs> <laughs> so talk a little bit through, you know, what the training requirements were to be an astronaut. We were training for the dinosaur program way ahead of the shuttle, okay? It was a precursor to the shuttle. The plan was to fly it into space and then fly it back like an airplane. And so the F-104, what they would do, they'd take it up 35,000 feet, or we'd take it up 35,000 feet, and shut the engine off and land it, okay, with no engine. Every accident we had in test pilot school had to do with that maneuver because we were, we were trying to land the airplane at 300 and some knots, and it would hit the ground and bounce up, and guys were ejecting at the top of the arc. Dave Scott and, and, and Mike Adams ejected at the top of this arc, but they jamming the thing onto the ground at 300 and some knots, which you're not supposed to be jamming airplanes onto the runway doing some knots because it's going to react by bouncing up in the air. It was what, they, what happened. 
Did you actually do one of the flights where the engines were shut down? Your yeah, way? yeah. But you know, but I, but I lucked out. I mean, it was it was just absolute and total luck. And the same way with the other use of it was, we'd go to thirty five thousand feet and go and hit Mach two, and some of us would go to Mach two two point four and just pull the airplane up about a sixty degree angle. And as you're going through sixty eight thousand feet, you stop cocking and just let it go until they stop flying and then come back hopefully with your nose down so you could recover and start the airplane up and go back home. My trouble was the instructor staff was instructed not to instruct me. We'd go out and fly and, and I said, you know, what What are we doing? They say, if I wanted you to do something, I'd tell you. What? Uh, you know, we'd fly around. I said, well, what? I said, what are we doing? What kind of tests are we doing? We're going to do something. And, and he says, when I get to that, I'll tell you. And then, and then at halfway through the mission, let's go home. So what do I do? I started flying with one flight with the instructor and then a flight with, with a, a fellow student, you know. And I learned more old test procedures from other students. And, and I said, dude, could you go through that again? You know, how, you know? And that's how I learned. You got it up to 80,000. You got a view. Yeah. I always thought one day if I could see the curvature yeah, of the Earth. Evident. Yes, that and that's and you got that. Yeah, I did get that. What, yeah. How was it? Now that was was really revealing. I didn't realize at the eighty thousand feet you could see the curvature of it, and you know, and and that, and that big blue blanket that's holding this whole thing together. I, I didn't think about that. You know, how many people get to do that? How would it change people's attitude? Were were they able to see how delicate this place is, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and go through all that iteration of feelings? And that's been kind of kind of with me. And so the idea of astronauting into space and going into full orbit and seeing the delicacy of this planet—I I didn't miss that. I mean, I wanted to see that. So with all those challenges you had, you finished test pilot school. Of course. In the test pilot class, it was 17 of us. I graduated seventh out of 17. So we'd get into these arguments with Jaeger about my inadequacy. And so when we graduated, posted on his door, there's the grades posted there. And Ed Dwight is seventh out of 17, which was 10 white boys below Ed Dwight. We had one of our sessions where he was still at the end of test pilot school. Still trying to get, uh, Jaeger was trying to get me out of the program. He didn't even want me to graduate. He asked me to resign before graduation. And I said, hell no, I'm not going anywhere. What the hell would I resign for? And I got A's or A pluses or A minuses, but all, all, all my tests and stuff. But that's the kind of stuff that we were, were dealing with there. So now you've graduated. Yeah, I graduated. And then there was a big fight to go into the aerospace research pilot school, which was the space program thing. Because there's two astronaut programs. There was the NASA astronaut programs, and then there was the MOL program. And so when NASA said he ain't coming here, so Kennedy created the MOL program so he could assign a, uh, a black astronaut. So November 22nd, 1963, where were you? We were in Boeing going through full mission simulator training, okay? And that's where you get into the spacesuit, then you go up into orbit, and go in the noises there, or everything that you had experienced on a real mission and stuff like that. And so, Kenny Weir, who was head of our class, comes in the room and says, uh, president's been shot. And I said, dude, that's not funny, man. You know, and he said, no, the president is really dead. 
you know, uh, and so everybody stopped. It, the whole thing stopped. Simulators stopped. We all adjourned. And the big question that uh, all I heard, what's going to happen to Dwight? That's the only thing we heard. And, and, and for the first time in a while, nobody, I was sitting at this table by myself. <laughs> and so they were loaded us in an airplane, sat us back to Edwards, you know. So now we fast forward to uh, President Johnson getting involved in this whole process. And the deal was President Johnson had decided he needed his own black guy. And so they came to me with a deal. And the deal was this, uh, uh, you understand politics, Captain Dwight, blah, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. The president cannot afford you coming back from space. Kennedy appointee coming back from space. He wasn't going to have it. So we won't want to offer you a deal. You will get a space mission, but you got to, first of all, you got to stop making speeches because you, you know, you run around. I made some 2,000 speeches. First of all, you got to stop making speeches. Okay. Well, what we want you to do, we want you to help the president find your replacement. And that's what I did. It said, president wants a letter from you. Uh, outlining your replacement. And I wrote in him an 11-page report, and the president wants to know how you got in there in the first place, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. So the guy that he picks, he'll immune him from all of this stuff. And it went down the list. He has to be tall, taller than me. His face has got to be blacker. His skin has got to be blacker than me because I, was, I, I wasn't real black. I went through all these years doing this stuff like I had, and, and there's letters and comments of the guy, man, this guy ain't really black, you know what I mean? <laughs> so Bob Lawrence was was the right height, you know, uh, six foot tall, dark skin. He was the only one in the selection that had a, uh, a doctorate, they got him a doctorate and all that kind of stuff. And he was the highest ranking guy in the whole selection. So that's how this whole thing all kind of ended up. What happened to Bob Lawrence? Bob. In that maneuver I told you about, they were doing that maneuver, hit the ground, bounced up in the air. The guy in the front seat ejected. Bob's ejected from the back seat, uh, and the chute didn't open. There were 60 feet in the air, and so he landed without his chute opening. So let me let me finish with uh, one area here. So you resigned from the Air Force? Yeah, at that point in time, I I, I saw the writing on the wall. They'd asked me to get out of the country. Part of that deal, I told anybody, they asked me to leave the country. And they said, go get one of the globes to spin around and close your eyes and put wherever you put your finger, that's where we're gonna send you. And we'll send you a check every month. We don't care where in the world it is, go there. And so that's that's the, when I resigned. And so I went to my base commander and we communicated. And so they said, he's resigning. And he said, no, he's not resigning, he's going to jail. So they brought charges against me. And the, the reason, for it because I was communicating with senior officers and senators and congressmen, and it's against military law for me to have communicated directly with any of these people, and it amounted to 21 years in stockade. And it wasn't for my base commander there, I would be in, I'd, well, I'd be out by now because it was only 21 years. But, uh, but, but that's how the whole thing came to a crashing halt. And, uh, and I just, they gave me 72 hours to get off the military base no clearing of the base, say, well, whatever I had, I could take with me, but I was never to go in a, a, in a government building for the rest of my life. To this day, uh, I'm not supposed to go into a government building. <laughs> <laughs> You're in one now. Well, Good. now you tell us. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so after your resignation, you moved on to pursue new goals. And this is where, you know, you get hit hard, but then you bounce back and, you know, you're working for IBM as an engineer, opportunities in front of you. Tell us what was like transitioning, you know, to the next chapter of your life. It was really phenomenal. However, I was looking over my shoulder the whole time after I got out, uh, because these guys were so determined. I was supposed to crawl away and slink away and, and, and disappear, and I, and I didn't. That kind of upset them that I was still doing things and they were just fearful. And I was getting uh, investigations for the first, probably the first year, year and a half. I was getting phone calls, you know, I understand you were near so-and-so Air Force Base and, you know, where you're lurking, where you're trying to get in. And, well, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, and so for the first year or two, uh, I was really, when I was working for IBM, by the way, and I was, uh, and they gave me, I told them all this, and they gave me protective cover. 1977 now, go back to school in, here in Denver, get a master's degree in sculpture. A whole long time before that, you wanted to do art, and your yeah. dad said no. What drew you at that point in your life? I had this construction company, I, had a, I was doing departments of condos all over the place here. And at the end of the day, all this metal was laying all over the ground. And so I started, I threw it in the back of my Mercedes Benz and, and I took it home and I had bought a house on Mafia Boulevard and I needed some art for my house. And that's how it all started. I was started picking up this metal and I taught myself how to weld. Uh, and uh, every Saturday I was out welding on, the, on my parking out there and we drew a crowd. Everybody was sitting there watching me make art. And the next thing you know, the people started looking at it, wanted to buy it. And then our first black lieutenant governor got elected in 1974, uh, George Brown, and they said, we want a sculpture of him for the Capitol. And I said, George, you're crazy. And he told me a story. He said, black folks have been on the continent 300 years, and you can't go to a park, a city square, a museum, a gallery to find anything that black people have done. If they had to go recreate that black people would not have existed with the statuary and stuff like that, no memorials, no nothing. And said, so you're gonna go solve that problem. So that, that started the art career. And so I, I didn't know anything about art. So I went and enrolled at DU and ended up heading the sculpture department there. <laughs> the themes that you focus on, a lot of memorials, yeah. right? What, why, why was that a focus for you? Well, uh, because George had a point. That's how it all started. And so I started doing Black Cowboys. I did the Kentucky Derby. I did the Black Star of the Rodeos. And I just went down a whole list uh, of escaped slaves. They ended up coming to here. And Aunt Claire Brown, the woman that was famous back in the day and everything. And, and once the Park Service discovered it in a magazine and asked me to partner with them and, and spread it all over the country. So we spent five years on the road with the National Park Service, showing that to museums and uh, all over the country. And, and then they called me and wanted me to do a thing on music, so I did one on evolution of jazz uh, for them. We're very proud of the fact that one of your sculptures we give out each year to the honorees that we have for our gala here at Wings of the Rockies. So, Fantastic. Uh -huh. And thank you for that part of it. So now you've, you've described your challenges in life and and amazing accomplishments that you were able to do in the art world and so forth. What kept you going? What gave you the impetus to be able to strive forward? Just living life is a gift. This is really crazy. We've got all these people on to beat the hell out of each other with no understanding that, that they have, that there's a gift that's been <laughs> anointed. We get that you are a human being. 
uh, and, and your responsibility on this place is to make this place a better place. And that's what your job is. And your, your job is not trying to beat the hell out of the next guy or deprive somebody else of something that they deserve. I mean, there's no place for that. I was talking to somebody yesterday. If all our leaders were put in orbit up here and, and take a look at the earth and say to himself, oh my God, we got this gift and the nearest gift next to us is 300,000 light years away. They have the building blocks of another earth. And why should we destroy this thing and not make it better? And this little round ball we call the earth, that's just crazy. And that's the whole thing that drives me and has driven me all this time. And you get a chance to make life better for somebody, then you got to seize it. And there's no end to the giving. There's no end. You can't give enough. And I don't know why we can't use every opportunity that we have to, by example, make this a better place. And there are little spots of everybody's got a certain amount of responsibility to make this place better. And if they don't do it, then they're remiss and they're screwing up the gift. Did you do all you wanted to do as you look back at sitting there right now? No, I'm really stressing about the black art community because uh, there is no such thing as a black art community. There was a time in Harlem Renaissance when there was, when black artists started helping each other and they had a club they went to and they had good advice and got good counsel and everything. And then, then they become, you know, rock stars in the, in the art world and there's a, that's gone. And I'm not in the, our National Black Museum. Not even a mention of Ed Dwight uh, uh, having any historic value. That's my biggest disappointment about what, what the hell's going on here. Uh, you know, and you say to yourself, the big question is why. And so I'll tell you the truth, as soon as I die, everybody's going, this guy was the greatest guy in the world. <laughs> and he should be at every museum in the world. <laughs> Folks listening to this who, for one reason or another, have given up on following their own dreams, what do you tell them? Well, you know, it's, it's really hard to tell somebody that's been knocked around and beat up and broken and have their spirits broken. But something led up to them having their spirits broken. Uh, in other words, somebody in the, in, the, in the process, in line, didn't do their job and they've had nobody around them. And so you say to yourself, where's that safety valve? Where's that play, magic place you can go? But because everybody's born with, with, with the right stuff. How do you lead them uh, and give them the proper guidance to, to get themselves out of the hole and who couldn't you line them up with? And the problem is there's just not enough people standing on the roadway between that are willing to jump in there and say, okay, yeah, I can, I've been there and I can handle what you got. Here's some advice I'm giving to you because you do have the talent. Uh, you're a living human being and you have the talent to go out and do great things. And all you got to do is to get, become a believer that you can do that and things start working. And you know, if you become a believer that you can do something, it starts working, little at a time. Well, thanks, Ed. I mean, it's been great. Great stories. And maybe we'll get that 104 fly and fly you to Washington. Hey, that, that, <laughs> but thank you very much for joining us. Okay. Well, well, this has been fun, guys. Oh, thanks. It's been our fun. Wow, what an amazing life to learn about. There are so many interesting aspects of Ed's story that, that I didn't know about, like most of it. And what I was particularly interested by was just how he smiled through this whole interview. All of the things that he went through in his life, the challenges, the successes, and as John, as you and I sat in front of him, all 
he did was smile his way through it. What were your takeaways? Well, he did it with grace and true reflection on what it was like to be in the 1960s. As a black man, being one of the first to fly in jets and be part of the Air Force, then to go to test pilot school, and then to be picked to be one of the candidates for going into space the first time. And his story, I think, is compelling and it is something that causes us to reflect and it also needs to be told. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and I'm glad we got to do that. That's going to do it, folks. We hope you enjoyed episode 31 of the Behind the Wings podcast as much as we did. We really are so happy to have you back for this exciting new season. There's a lot in store coming up. Thanks for listening, and be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access the show notes. Now make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and subscribe. And while you're at it, be sure to leave a review. It's the best way to get our show out there and we greatly appreciate hearing from you we'll see you next time right here on behind the wings